Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7. Both this morning and next Sunday, we'll be looking at this passage, which is one of the more familiar prophecy passages, speaking of the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. This morning, I'll be focusing on the first half of this passage, and then next Sunday, we'll focus more on the second half of the passage. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. How many fork-in-the-road moments have you had in your life? I'm talking about those moments when you're faced with at least two options, maybe more options, and you have to make a decision. And you realize, at least partially, that when you make that decision, it's going to cause your life to veer in a certain direction that would be very different than if you chose differently in that fork-in-the-road moment in your life. Often, we really recognize those moments and the importance of those moments in retrospect or in hindsight. 
realizing that there were certain decisions that we made that had a huge impact on how the direction our life took, and we didn't even fully realize how important those decisions were at the time. When I talk about a fork in the road moment, what I'm really describing is what is technically and literally a crisis. We tend to associate the word crisis with something bad happening in life, but that's not what it means in its most literal sense. Let me give you a dictionary definition of crisis. A crisis is a stage in a sequence of events at which the trend of all future events, especially for better or for worse, is determined. In other words, a turning point. So it could be a turning point for the better or a turning point for the worse, but it's a fork in the road moment. And the decisions you make at those moments are huge, are crucial. I think back to the fork of the road moment in my life, one of the biggest ones I can remember, and I certainly didn't realize, probably a good thing I didn't realize how big of a decision it was at the time, but I was a, when I was a senior in high school, I was a brand new believer. I didn't have any Christian friends, had no Christian mentors, didn't know anything about the Bible. And I desperately wanted to go to a Christian college. But for financial reasons, I had to stay within the state of Pennsylvania. And so I decided I settled on two colleges as options, either Messiah College or Geneva College. And I wrestled through that decision and... and Spring of my senior year, I settled on Messiah. I was going to go to Messiah College. That's where I was headed, and I was all set to go. Then, in God's providence, I happened to bump into a, an acquaintance of mine at a restaurant, and this person, this young woman, had just gone to Geneva the year before. And she talked to me about the decision I was making. She said, I think maybe you ought to take a second look at Geneva. And I'm like, no, no, I made up my mind. It's too late. Well, she twisted my arm a little bit, and I said, well, let, let, me, I'll, I'll, you, let me check it out. I'll, I'll drive down there and give it one more look. Came back, changed my mind, decided to go to Geneva instead of Messiah. Now, in hindsight, if you know those two colleges at all, if you don't, this, you may not get this, but if you know those two colleges at all, in hindsight, what a huge decision that was. How many things are different about my life would have been different about my life if I had gone to Messiah instead of Geneva College. First of all, I wouldn't have married my wife. Now, I know God is sovereign, and he could have somehow brought her into my life at some other point in some other way, but we're just from a human perspective, from a horizontal perspective, undoubtedly I wouldn't have married my wife, which meant none of my kids would look the way they do. I don't know if they'd be, I don't know how that works. Would they be different kids that look, you know, or the same kids that look different? I don't know, but they wouldn't look the way they do anyway. So I'd get to have a whole different set of kids. I would have ended up with undoubtedly a different theology, if you know those two colleges. And I would have ended up with a different worldview to some degree. Christian certainly in either case, but different worldview based on that theology. Which means I would have ended up in a different denomination and probably wouldn't be here. All that due to one chance encounter with an acquaintance at a restaurant that talked me out of going to Messiah and got me to Geneva. That, that was a fork-in-the-road moment for me. What a huge difference it could have been if I had not changed my mind. I'm sure you have those kinds of moments in hindsight in your life as well. And there are a handful of those huge decisions that you make that make those kinds of differences, and maybe some of you are facing them this morning. 
I realize anytime I'm speaking to a university crowd, I'm talking to people that either are in the midst of making decisions like this or are soon to be, will be making them. But honestly, every decision you make every day of your life has an impact on the direction your life takes. When they're small decisions, they have a cumulative effect. Once in a while, you have to make a big decision that has an immediate and profound effect. But all decisions you make affect the course that your life takes. And so the basis on which you make those decisions is so important. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to be looking at this prophecy over this week and next week, as I said. And of course, the key verse, the one that you all know, is verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we look at this as kind of like a proof text to prove that Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, the only one ever born of a virgin, was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. We look at it like a proof text. But I want you to see it this morning in the context of history. And you'll see that this prophecy was not given just as kind of a a marker to say, well, when you see this miraculous thing happen, you're going to know the Messiah is here. But that wasn't the primary reason that this prophecy was given originally. It was given as a sign to point a king over God's people to make a decision on the right basis. To make a decision on the basis of faith not upon sight. Let me look at the historical context, and bear with me. Some of you don't like history. This is really important. You understand the context of this, so bear with me for a moment. The year we're talking about here is 735 B.C., about a little over 700 years before Christ was born. The ascending, ascending world empire at the moment was Assyria. And I'm always conscious of the fact when I'm preaching that there are children in the room, so I won't talk about how awful of an empire Assyria was. But you could go back in historical sources and read the kind of things that they did, especially to peoples that they conquered. And I I couldn't even describe it in this company, the kind of horrible things. They were known as a savage and merciless empire. And they were moving... Later in in chapter 7, it describes them like a swarm of bees. They were moving through the Middle East. And at this point, the people of God are established there in Palestine, not far from where Assyria is growing and ascending in power, but they're divided into two nations. You have the northern ten tribes, of Israel, which is called Ephraim here in in several cases. It's called Ephraim because Ephraim was one of the larger and dominant tribes in Israel. And then you had the southern kingdom of Judah, which contained Jerusalem. The northern kingdom did not have, at this point, a Davidic king, but the southern kingdom did have a Davidic king on the throne, somebody in the line of David, ultimately in the line of promise. But Israel, being to the north was actually close to Assyria and was in imminent danger of being conquered and being treated as all of Assyria's uh, enemies were being treated. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, not Judah, but Israel, entered into what the prophets would have called an unholy alliance with the nation of Syria, not Assyria, but the nation of Syria. And here in your passage, especially some translations, use the word Aram. It's another name for Syria. 
So Israel, the northern kingdom, allies itself against the word of God with Syria against Assyria in an alliance for protection to fight together against Assyria. And they wanted to bring Judah into that alliance so that all of Palestine would be joined together and all the resources could be pulled to protect themselves against the advance of Assyria. But Judah had refused. And comparing Isaiah 7 with the accounts that we, the historical accounts that we have in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we know that Israel and Assyria had already invaded Judah once to try to force them to comply and become part of the alliance. And during that invasion, it was devastating to Judah. They lost 120,000 soldiers and 200,000 people of Judah were taken into captivity. Just an interesting side note to that story. God sent a prophet to rebuke the men of Israel for taking their brothers into captivity. And so they actually obeyed and sent them back to Judah, those 200,000. But the current, as we speak, as we read Isaiah 7, the current king on the throne of Judah is Ahaz. And Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah. Ahaz was known for copying the religious practices and beliefs of the nations around them. He was known, most notoriously, for actually sacrificing his own children to an idol. And he went so far as to stop the sacrifices at the temple and to shut the doors of the temple itself. So this was totally an apostate king. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it says that the house of David was told. It doesn't even use Ahaz's name, and I'm kind of fascinated by it in this text, that the names are left out. Um, the name Pekah was the name of the king in Israel, and his name is left out. He's called the son of Ramaliah, just to show how insignificant he was in God. God it's almost like God acts like he forgot his name. He's that insignificant. But here... God addresses, when, when, when the scriptures address who Ahaz was, it calls him the house of David, which is a reminder that this was God's throne and that the representative of God's king is on the throne, that he represents God and that he's in the line of the promised Messiah. And so you have that reminder right up front. And he's told that King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah of Israel were about to invade again. And notice what it says, how Ahaz and the people of Judah respond. It says, their hearts shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified because they knew that the, from all worldly purposes, they could not stand against the forces that were coming against them. But you understand that at this point, Ahaz is between a rock and a hard place, politically, militarily. Because he has a choice as he sees it. He could either form an alliance with Israel and Syria against Assyria, or he would have the choice of actually forming an alliance or pledging, shouldn't even call it an alliance, really pledging to serve the empire of Assyria in the hopes that Assyria would protect Judah against Israel and Syria. That's what Ahaz understands his situation to be. He's at a fork in the road. He has a huge decision to make, not only for his own life, but for all of Judah. 
And that's where we find him at the beginning of chapter 7. This is a true crisis. And do you notice what the Lord does for the house of David, for the people of Judah, for Ahaz? What he does for them is he gives them a third option. You think you have two options, Ahaz. I'm here to offer you a third option, which is that the Lord would save you. The salvation that comes only from the Lord. And just like every other promise of salvation in Scripture, the only requirement that the Lord asks of Ahaz and the people of Judah is that they put their faith in that promise. That's what verse 9 says. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Who do you trust, Ahaz? Where is your true alliance? And this is where it begins to get relevant to us. That's ancient Middle Eastern history. But they're facing a crisis. They're facing a fork in the road, just like you face forks in the road all the time. And the basis on which the Lord calls upon Ahaz to make his important decisions is the same basis that you are asked to make all your decisions every day of your life, whether they're small or large. We're talking about the focus of your faith. What's the object of your faith? When the, when the world talks about faith, they talk about it like it's just a feeling that you have or some vague sense of positivity. But when the scriptures talk about faith, it's a faith in some objective reality, a truth, something you put your feet down on, something you build your house on, something that you stake your life on. And in this passage, there are three things that we are to focus our faith upon when we face those fork-in-the-road crisis moments in life, whether they're large or small. The first one is God's plan for us. God's plan, which is for us. And you'll notice that's slightly different than your bulletin. I switched the order as I looked at this because I really realized that this one actually comes first. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, we see that God knows the plans of men. God knows them. He knows every movement of King Ahaz. Notice that he tells the prophet Isaiah to go to Ahaz, and he tells him exactly where he's going to be standing so that he can bring the word of the Lord to him. And in particular, Ahaz, the Lord tells him, will be standing at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Now that's significant, where he's standing. Because this conduit was actually an above-ground aqueduct which would bring water, fresh water, from outside the city of Jerusalem into the city. Now, why would King Ahaz, in his moment of crisis, be standing next to this aqueduct? Why would he be there? Well, because if your city is about to come under siege from your enemies, you need to make sure that your, your source of fresh water is guarded and protected and you're able to sustain it as long as possible. Because if you lose fresh water, you're not going to last very long. And so what we realize is that Isaiah is sent to talk to Ahaz just as Ahaz is planning his military strategy while he's making his defensive plans. He's working out in his own wisdom and his own efforts to protect the city in his own life. And the Lord knew not only what his plans were, but where he would be exactly as he made them. And then look at verses 5 and 6. 
When Isaiah brings the word of the Lord to Ahaz, he reveals to Ahaz, not only does the Lord know what his, the king of his own people are, are doing and planning and thinking, but he also knows what the enemies are talking about and thinking and planning. He says that the, these two kings, Pekah and Rezin, these two kings have agreed together to conquer Jerusalem and set up the son of Tabeel, who was not a Davidic king, who was one of their lackeys. We don't know who he was, but obviously he's someone in cahoots with them. And he was going to take one of their lackeys and put him on the throne like a puppet king over Judah so that they could make Judah part of the alliance and use all the resources of Judah against Assyria. That was the plan. And the Lord knew it all along. The Lord knows the plans of men. And in this message to Ahaz, he shows how weighty and important the plans of men are in the eyes of the sovereign God of the universe. He says in verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. When we're faced with those forks in the road, it's important that we trust in the plan of God. That we understand that there is a master plan, no matter how chaotic Things may seem in life there is a master plan and it will come to pass. The purpose of the Lord will stand and the plans of men cannot thwart it or change it even a little bit. In Isaiah, uh, actually in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, listen to what it says. It It shows here that the Lord overrules the plans of nations. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And so whatever nations are planning, even as we speak this morning, the Lord knows those plans. He knows the thoughts in every leader's head before they even speak them. And those plans will come to nothing insofar as they contradict the master plan of God for all of history in the universe. But also the Lord overrules the plans of individuals. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Whatever plans you are making, understand in light of this. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so what's important as we face those fork in the road moments in our lives, that we understand that there is a master plan, that God's will is perfect, and that our plans need to conform to his plans if we want to see success and what we're striving for. It's interesting that the Lord gives Ahaz a glimpse, a rare glimpse of his master plan in detail. He says, he's even down to the year, within 65 years, Ephraim, or the northern kingdom of Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And that's exactly what happened. Three years after this prophecy, Syria was wiped out by Assyria. Thirteen years after this prophecy, in 722 B.C., the nation of Israel was defeated and was put into subjugation to Assyria, and many of its key people were deported. But it's exactly 65 years later that a decree went out from the king of Assyria to deport all the rest of the significant people out of the northern kingdom of Israel and to import in all a mixed group of foreigners from all the nations that they had conquered. And what you end up with is this culture that had very little resemblance to the northern kingdom of Israel that was made up of people of many nations and backgrounds is really the, the, the 
the ancestors to the Samaritans in the day of Christ. And from that moment on of that year, 65 years after this prophecy, from that moment on, there was absolutely no human, political, sociological hope for the northern kingdom of Israel ever being resurrected as a nation again. They were decimated. They were shattered as a people, according to the word of the Lord. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Ahaz for a moment. He's been given a glimpse of how this nation that he fears to the point of shaking like a tree, this nation that he fears is going to be shattered and out of existence within 65 years. I'm sure part of his first reaction would be like, well, so what? I'll be dead by then. (laughs) What, What does that have to do with my life? Well, I think that's really kind of the point, though, isn't it? It's not about you, Ahaz. It's not about your kingdom. It's not about your throne. It's not about your life. It's not about your plans. It's about the master plan. It's about the kingdom. It's about the Messiah. It's about God's plan for the world, which is about what? About the redemption of his people. The sending of a redeemer to conquer sin and death and to establish a kingdom on earth which will come to fill the entire earth with the righteousness of the Lord. That's the plan of the Lord. That's the plan that Ahaz should be tapped into. That's the one he should be matching his plans to. That's where he should be putting his trust. So what? As far as the rest of your success in your kingdom, Ahaz, it's not about you. It's about Christ in his kingdom. It's a good thing for you to remember in your big and little decisions in life. The Lord loves you. You're at the center of his plan, but it's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about his kingdom. That's what he's working towards in this world, and it's how you fit into that great work to glorify Christ and to extend his kingdom. So when you make those decisions, those fork-in-the-road moments, your first concern is the plan of God. The second concern is God's power upon us that's where we put our faith and trust God's power that is upon us which is greater than all the powers that are obstructing or against you look at verse 4 Isaiah says to Ahaz be careful be quiet do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah Do you realize what he's referring to there? If you've ever done a campfire and after the, you know, you've had a big fire burning for a long time and then it all burns down and you decide that people are getting tired, everybody wants to go home and so you kind of let it burn down to nothing and the fire stops and you go over to the fire pit and you look in and there's lots of ashes but there's just a few little chunks of wood with a little bit of red on them and you kind of look at them and say, well, do I need to, do I need to squelch those? Do I need to make sure those are out so this is safe? And the ones that are so small that you say, well, they're not going to hurt anything. Well, I'll just leave those. They'll burn out on their own. They're almost done anyway. That's what he's comparing the, the king of Israel and the king of Syria to, those little chunks of wood at the end of a campfire. He's saying, don't fear these guys. Don't worry about them. They're almost completely spent. They're harmless in the big picture of the plan of God. Don't trust them and don't fear them is what he's saying. They're mere men. They're like the grass of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so when you're in those fork in the road moments in life, you need to first 
consult the plan of God revealed in his word. But then secondly, you need to consider and keep your eyes on the power of God that's at work in your life. The first step of faith when you face your fears in a crisis or a decision-making moment is to shut your eyes and pray and say, Lord, help me to see the true state of things as you see it. These obstacles in my way, these people that are opposed to me, these sufferings that I'm going through, help me to see them as you see them. There's a great story earlier in, in Israel's history, in the nation of Israel, there was, the king of Syria was actually attacking Israel uh, just, just a, a little bit earlier in history from this time. when They weren't allies yet. They were actually fighting with one another. And the king of Syria got really frustrated because every time, every time he went to attack somewhere, it's like somehow the, the, the men of Israel knew his plans in advance. And so every time he tried to attack, they were already ready for him. And it kept happening over and over. And so then he called in all his advisors and, and, and military leaders and says, What's going on? There must be a spy. Who, who's reporting to Israel so he knows everything I'm doing? And they said, no, there's no spy. It's this prophet named Elisha. Elisha keeps telling him, and I love the words, the words actually, he keeps telling him, the words you speak in your bedroom is what he says. And so the king of Israel knows what you're doing before you do it. And again, we see the Lord knows the plans. The Lord knows intimately the plans even before we form them. The Lord knows. And so the king of Syria responded to that news by saying, well then, I'll just take care of Elisha. So he got together an army with chariots and horses and men, many men, and sent an army to a little town called Dothan where Elisha was hanging out. And he said, kill Elisha. And so the army surrounded this little town of Dothan and Elisha's there in a house inside the city with one of his servants. And just let me, I'll go ahead and read to you from 2 Kings chapter 6 what happens at that point. When the servant of the man of God, Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a great, rare moment where the Lord pulls back the curtain and says, You have no idea of the resources of heaven that are available to you as you face this crisis. You have no idea of the power of the Lord that's available to deliver you and to guide you throughout whatever you're going through. We need to know when we face those fork-in-the-moment roads in our lives, we need to know by faith because we don't usually get those kinds of visions. We need to know by faith that the Lord has given us all of his power. He's the one who spoke the universe into existence. And when we seek his glory, his kingdom, to do his will, then all that power is at work behind us, around us, under us, and through us. We often quote Philippians 4, verse 13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we tend to quote that out of context. 
and make it sound like it's some kind of a blank check that, you know, Christ is for me so I can go do whatever I want to do and all my plans can be fulfilled. That's not what it says. If you look at it in context, Paul is talking about how the Lord has taught him to be content in all circumstances of life, wherever the Lord has placed him, whether in plenty or in want. No matter what the Lord asks of him in the Lord's master plan, Paul knew that the power of Christ was with him to bring him through it. He needs to trust in God's plan and power in the midst of whatever circumstances God's call upon his life leads him into. Make that a daily prayer. Make that a daily prayer where you say to the Lord, open my eyes so I can see your power that is available to me to do your will. Stay in the word, because the word will impress that upon you everywhere you read it, that you can do all things that God calls you to do through Christ who strengthens you. That brings us to the third focus of our faith, which is God's presence with us. And that's where we, I just want to touch momentarily on that prophecy in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We'll dig into that much more next week. But just note this miraculous child's name for a second. Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. That was really the summary of all of God's covenant promises to his people. I will be your God. You will be my people. I am going to redeem for myself a people, deliver them from sin and death, and I will be with them. I will be reconciled to them. I will be their father. They will be my children. That's really the covenant promise. And this child would make that possible. This promise of the virgin-born child would help the faithful people of God for the next 700 years to continue to serve God in all their circumstances, waiting for this miraculous birth. Understanding that it was this birth that would make possible the presence of God for all eternity. In Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. As we read a moment ago, In Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus Christ came to die for us and to rise from the dead for us so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we can know no matter what decision we make in any situation in life, that God will never leave us or forsake us because of the completed work of Christ on the cross. And Jesus himself said, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. In those fork in the moment, fork fork in the road moments in your life, this is what you need to base your faith on. This is rock solid. This is truth. This is reality. We don't need to know the future. We need to just trust the one who controls it completely in great detail. I remember when I was 
at another one of these fork in the road moments, in hindsight now I look back and how big it was, is when I was facing a very difficult decision to leave the first church that I pastored when I finished seminary. I, uh, after being there for a few years, I felt led for many different reasons to go to a different ministry and a different church. But it was a very hard decision. I had so many factors I was trying to weigh. And you know, you, I'm sure you've done it before. You make your list of pros and cons. And when you make that list, it, it, you even get down to the point of even counting each one. You've got the same number on each side. And, and it just leaves you in this, this deep turmoil. And, and, and you, you want to make the right decision. And you're just in anguish over it. And that's the state that I was in. I was, I, for, for most of a year, I was really troubled by what, what was the right decision, what God wanted me to do. I was trying to fit into his master plan. But I could argue myself into or out of either option pretty easily. And so finally, I went to a good friend of mine. And this is something, if you're in one of these fork-in-the-road moments, seek godly counsel. Seek out people who know the scriptures and know the Lord or are closer to him than you are and get their advice. And that's what I did. I went to a man of God that I trusted intimately. And I said to him, here's my dilemma. And I spelled it out for him. He's really the first person outside of my wife that I shared my dilemma with. And, I, I, and I, he could tell I was in deep anguish over this. And he started laughing at me. And I said, what are you laughing at me for? This is, I'm, I'm really troubled about this. There's nothing funny about this. And he just shook his head and he says, Dan, I hope you're not offended by this, but you're making too big of a deal out of this. He said, God, and this is what stuck with me ever since then, God cares a lot less about where you are geographically and what your circumstances are than he does about where your heart is. As long as your heart is where it needs to be, you're seeking his glory and seeking his kingdom first. God's going to bless you wherever you are. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes. You might get to end up somewhere that maybe, you know, is not the best place to be. But as long as your heart is right with him, he's going to bless you, no matter how difficult the road gets ahead. You don't need to fear. Trust the Lord. He cares more about your heart than your geography. And that stuck with me. It sounds really trite and cliche, maybe, to some of you. But to me, it was profound. And it helped me to get through that decision. It's helped me to get through a lot of decisions since then. As you make the big and small decisions in your life that affect the direction of your life, hear the word of the Lord through Isaiah. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Remember the three things that you hold on to by faith in those moments when you fear the future. First of all, God's power is greater than the forces that are against you and any of the obstacles that are in your way. Secondly, God's plan is the map for your future, and it is good. And thirdly, God's presence is with you always because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll find out next week that sadly Ahaz chose very badly. God offered him a third option of salvation. He chose the nation of Assyria instead. And his people... And he himself suffered greatly because he didn't trust in the Lord. Suffering reveals character, they say. Well, moments of crisis reveal your faith. Where have you placed your faith? The angel said to Mary, do not fear. You are the virgin that will give birth to the Son of God. The angel said to Joseph, do not fear. Mary is the virgin who will give birth to the Son of God. And the angel said to the shepherds, do not fear. The promised virgin virgin has given birth to the Son of God. Let our attitude be to the word of the Lord the same as Mary's was when she said, may it be unto me according to your word.
you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for trusting in the flesh, for trusting in our own wisdom, for making our own plans for our own glory. Teach us, Lord, to see by faith, to understand that your plan cannot be thwarted, and that your plan is for our good for all eternity, and that your power is available to us as we seek your glory and your kingdom, and that the presence of the Holy Spirit is always with us because Christ has paid for our sins and has been raised from the dead. Lord, as we celebrate his incarnation over these next couple of weeks, may our eyes always be lifted to the victory we have in him for all eternity. His blood has been shed. We are forgiven. We belong to you. Thank you for your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.